Thanks for meeting us at the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious disease podcast by infectious disease physicians. I'm your host, Summer Stewart, and I'm excited to introduce infectious disease physician and author, Dr. Rapina Purewall. Dr. Purewall is a Canadian pediatric infectious disease physician from Edmonton, Alberta. She completed her medical school at the University of Pesh in Hungary and her three-year residency program at West Virginia University. She returned to Canada in 2017 to start a pediatric infectious disease fellowship at the University of Manitoba. Upon completing her fellowship, Dr. Purewall moved to Saskatchewan as a clinician and as an academic physician at the University of Saskatchewan. For our first episode, Dr. Purewall will present the Canadian Antimicrobial Resistance Surveillance System Update. Welcome, Dr. Purewall. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Summer, for that great introduction. I'm very excited to be here today to start our very first episode of our podcast. And as Summer mentioned, my name is Rapina Purewall, and I'm a pediatric infectious disease physician here in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan at the Jim Pattison Children's Hospital. I've taken the initiative to start a Canadian-based podcast for my Canadian colleagues, whether it be infectious disease specialists, microbiologists, family physicians, pharmacists, or really anybody dealing with prescribing antibiotics and the use of antibiotics. On our podcast, we'll be doing monthly episodes with interesting areas. I'll be discussing current and up-to-date topics related to antimicrobials, stewardship, and really all sorts of infectious diseases. Now, some of our podcasts will be more informative, while others will be more interactive with specific guests. So thank you so much for tuning in. Today's episode will be a summary of the Canadian Antimicrobial Resistance Surveillance System, the CARS report that was updated in 2020. As most of you are aware, CARS is a Canadian national system for reporting on antimicrobial resistance and antimicrobial use. And it's one of Public Health Agency of Canada's commitments as a part of the Pan-Canadian Framework for Action on Antimicrobial Resistance and Use. And by reporting findings on antimicrobials, it provides really us decision makers with evidence to support policy and programs to foster prudent antimicrobial use to prevent and control resistance in Canada. So our very first episode will be a condensed update with the main focus really on the priority pathogens listed in the report that are showing a trend in Canada that's getting worse. Antimicrobial data for certain pathogens and antimicrobial use in humans, along with emerging threats that are being identified in Canada. As most of you are aware, antimicrobial resistance is increasing in Canada. And surveillance is one technique to identify resistance rates and create awareness to reduce overuse and overprescribing of antibiotics. The report really highlights some concerning trends in Canada that we should all be aware of. And therefore, it's a very important topic, especially for us in the clinical world. So to begin with, we will be talking about three pathogens. So there'll be MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, vancomycin-resistant Enterococcus, also known as VRE, and then also carbapenemase-producing Enterobacteraceae. So starting off with kind of what the report went through in regards to MRSA in 2014 to 2018, it did identify this pathogen as a trend towards getting worse. 
So over 65 hospitals reported to the Canadian Nosocomial Infection Surveillance Program and 2,900 MRSA bloodstream infection cases were reported and over 550 deaths were reported due to MRSA in 2014 to 2018. Now, whenever we speak about MRSA, we always discuss either healthcare-associated versus community-associated MRSA bloodstream infections. And so those are the areas that we will be talking about today that were mentioned in the reports in regards to their mortality, in regards to their resistance patterns, and also agents um, for non-bloodstream MRSA infections. So starting off with healthcare-associated MRSA, it was noted that the all-cause mortality during this 2014 to 28 period was noted to be close to 24%. They did notice that all, these, all the strains were susceptible to vancomycin and less than 1% were non-susceptible to daptomycin. Now, looking at those agents that are used for non-bloodstream MRSA infections and the healthcare-associated MRSA strains, they noticed no resistance to linazolin, resistance to rifampin, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, and tetracycline were reported as low, ranging from anywhere from 1% to 4%, and notably for tetracycline around 4%. And resistance to clindamycin has decreased from 75% to 50%. So those were some reassuring numbers for clindamycin. Now, comparably, looking at the community-associated MRSA bloodstream infections, these have increased by 140% between 2014 to 2018. And it was reported that this was largely driven by the increase in cases attributed to the community. So the number of cases overall had increased in the community as well. Now, all-cause mortality was lower for the community-associated MRSA bloodstream infections than it was for the healthcare associated MRSA infections and notably at 14% as compared to the 24% we had just mentioned. Now in the report they also went through more details for the community associated MRSA infections and specifically outlining the different strain types. So historically based on Canadian standards strains 7 and 10 were associated with community associated MRSA. And strain type 2 was historically associated with healthcare-associated MRSA. However, they had noticed that strain types 2 and 10 were decreased overall, but the community MRSA type 7 had increased from 8 to up until 9% between this 2014 to 2018 period. For the community-associated MRSA, they did say, state that all isolates were susceptible to vancomycin and there was less than 1% non-susceptibility to daptomycin. So very similar to our healthcare-associated MRSA. And then comparing the non-bloodstream or agents that we use for non-bloodstream infections for MRSA, they did note that trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and rifampin resistance rates were low ranging anywhere again from that 1% to 3% to 4%. Um, but something that was considerably different was that the tetracycline resistance rates were higher 
than compared to the healthcare associated. So like I mentioned before, it was at 4% resistance to tetracycline for the healthcare associated. And from now for the community associated MRSA infections, the resistance for tetracycline was close to 10%. And so that was important information. Um, and clindamycin, kind of similar to the healthcare associated MRSA, had decreased uh, for the community associated isolates as well, from down from uh, uh, down to 30% from 40%. Now moving on to our second pathogen that we're talking about today, which is vancomycin resistant enterococcus. It's also notably a priority pathogen indicated as getting worse for its trend summary. So similar to MRSA, 62 hospitals reported information to CNISP and 649 cases of VRE, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus bloodstream infections were reported and over 200 deaths during this time period of 2014 to 2018. Now, the rates of healthcare-associated vancomycin-resistant enterococcus bloodstream infections more than doubled between this 2014 and 2018 period. So those are significant numbers. The all-cause mortality was also higher for cases with healthcare-associated VRE. 31% of patients died within 30 days of diagnosis between this 2014 to 2018 period. Now, another important area um, that notably was um, mentioned in this report and updated was that 98% of the isolates for VRE were Enterococcus faecium, and less than 2% were reported as or speciated to Enterococcus faecalis. So really goes to show that the numbers of Enterococcus faecium were significantly higher. And there's a rapid emergence of a specific sequence type that was mentioned also in the report. And the sequence, the specific sequence type, the ST1478, that was reported for Enterococcus faecium, it was actually initially first reported in 2013 in Canada, but now it's representing over 40% of the isolates between this 2014 to 2018 period. And the reason why it's important is because this actual sequence type, ST1478, was associated with rising levels of resistance to important antimicrobials such as gentamicin and daptomycin. And so I think that was a significant point in the report that they wanted to convey that these, especially for us clinicians thinking about empiric management or um, even synergy, uh, it was an uh, important um, and a key point that resistance rates are increasing for these agents. In terms of antimicrobial susceptibility, so it was available for over 70% of the isolates, and it was noted that daptomycin non-susceptibility had increased from back in 2014, where it was 0%, up to 7 to 8% in 2018. Um, and so that was a significant change. Resistance to high-level gent also increased from 9 up until 43%. And resistance to linazolid also was notably increased from 0 up until 1.3%. 
Now, finally, moving on to our third pathogen or priority pathogen, I should say, that is showing a trend towards getting worse between this 2014 and 2018 period are the carbapenemase producing enterobacteriaceae group. So again, over 60 hospitals reported around 290 hospital or healthcare associated colonizations, 73 healthcare associated infections due to CP organisms, and a total of 365 healthcare associated CPE cases and 16 deaths in between 2014 to 2018. So looking at the Canadian hospital data, it reported a nine-fold increase in patients that have been colonized with healthcare-associated CPE organisms. And so really, although infection rates remain low and stable, it was disclosed that increased rates of colonizations were being reported, and this could be due to either heightened awareness, increased screening, however, it's still of concern. The all-cause mortality was high for cases that had healthcare-associated CPE infections, ranging at 16% of patients that died within 30 days of the diagnosis between this uh, four years. Healthcare-associated CPE cases were reported that often are associated with international travel and international healthcare exposure, as many of us are aware, and these are kind of the screening questions and the reasons for screening in Canada. However, domestic nosocomial transmission also appears to be increasing, and that was mentioned in the report. In 2018, around 40% of patients were identified that were identified with healthcare-associated CPE had traveled outside of Canada within the past 12 months, and 84% of the reported isolates uh, for these patients, they had received medical care while abroad. And so an important point, again, for the reasons that why we um, screen such high-risk patients. So the carbapenemase, another um, interesting kind of report for the CPE was looking at what types of carbapenemases were identified. And so when they looked at over 147 isolates, they were all reviewed, the proportion of the carbapenemase that were identified, majority of them were KPC, so Klebsiella pneumonia carbapenemase producing in 54% of those isolates. So 80 out of 147 of them had KPC carbapenemases being produced. Uh, the second highest was the NDM, which is a New Delhi metallobetalactamase at 23%. And then in decreasing order was oxalinase, the OXA48 at around 10%, and serratia marcensis enzyme SME at 2%. So this was the overall kind of trends that, um, and some information regarding these three priority pathogens that I wanted to discuss. And I think uh, they definitely um, highlighted significant changes um, that are important for us as clinicians. So I'm going to move on to talking about some antibiogram data for specific pathogens that were discussed in the report, because I felt like this was a very crucial um, point in this 2014 to 
2015 report that they they wanted to emphasize um, because these are agents that we are seeing some worrisome uh, changes. So the data that was reported by hospitals was both from inpatient and outpatient and duplicate isolates were removed when this antibiogram data was established. Now many of us are probably more familiar with having a minimum cutoff point for reporting around 30 isolates per hospital. However, as of 2018, um, or during this report, uh, like prior to 2018, that was the minimum cutoff, and now that's changed, and there's no longer this minimum cutoff for these um, the number of isolates and uh, reported. So just keep that in mind. So the couple of pathogens we're going to talk about here are E. coli, Acinetobacter species, and then Salmonella species. So let's start off with um, what the report kind of um, emphasized about E. coli. So between 2015 and 2018. The proportion of E. coli non-susceptible to carbapenems was less than 1% for both blood and urine isolates. So that was a reassuring uh, component. For E. coli specifically, looking at the antibiogram data for blood isolates that they reviewed, non-susceptibility for piperacillin and tazobactam had increased from 26 to 30%. Our trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole non-susceptibility also increased, ranging around the same, so 26 up to 30%. And non-susceptibility, however, for ciprofloxacin remained unchanged. And fortunately, like I mentioned, the carbapenem remained less than 1%. Now, comparing that with the E. coli urine isolates that were reported from 2016 to 2018, it was noted that non-susceptibility rates for piperacillin and tazobactam had increased from 4 up to 6%. For trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, they had actually decreased slightly from 24 to 21%. Non-susceptibility to ciprofloxacin also decreased from anywhere from 19 to 17%. And then the non-susceptibility to carbapenems, as mentioned before, was remained less than 1%. In terms of acinetobacter, something that was mentioned in the report was in 2018, the non-susceptibility to meropenem was close to 5%. Um, and I think that's an important number in terms of um, considering what our empiric management um, is and, and uh, taking care of these patients. So in moving on to the salmonella species, so majority of the isolates that were submitted for lab tests were cultured from blood for salmonella. Um, we will talk about both typhoidal and non-typhoidal salmonella enterica. So the data was restricted to isolates of salmonella enterica were serovars typhi, paratyphi, and then there were several non-typhoidal serovars. So Overall, most antimicrobial resistance remains stable, except for the following. Between 2014 and 2018, the frequency of salmonella typhi and paratyphi that was resistant to ceftriaxone increased from nearly undetectable, so 0% in 2014, up to levels of 3%. Between 2014 and 2018, it was also reported that the frequency of typhoidal salmonella resistance to ciprofloxacin increased by 34%. And I think that was a very, very important point um, and why empiric management has changed as well. In 2018, 
11% of typhoidal salmonella was resistant to either three or more classes of antimicrobials, so really putting it into this multi-class resistant category. And of note, no resistance to azithromycin was identified. Now, comparing this to the non-typhoidal salmonella species, the number of isolates that were submitted for lab testing overall had decreased from 2,500 to 20, close to 2,100. Um, and notably, 85% of the non-typhoidal samples were recovered from stool specimens as opposed to blood or urine, which were really only less than 5 to 7%. In 2018, 13% of the non-typhoidal salmonella were resistant to three or more classes. And really looking at resistance to tetracyclines had increased from 11 to 16%. The other classes like trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and ciprofloxacin had remained stable. And there was no identifiable resistance to meropenem that was seen. And so that was quite reassuring for that fact. Now, that was the main components that I wanted to discuss from those categories. And I think an important point that um, we should take from reading this report and reviewing this report is kind of also focus on not only the resistance patterns that have been predicted, because those are helpful during our clinical practice, but also looking at some of the statistics that are alarming for antimicrobial use in humans. So for the next section of the podcast that do want to focus on antimicrobial use in humans. And some of the statistics that were quite alarming to me were that one in four Canadians received at least one antibiotic course in 2018. And when you look at either surveillance at a global level or even respectively at a regional level, it was tremendous to see kind of the differences. And so globally, just to kind of give you an overview, there is a European surveillance of antimicrobial consumption network where Canada, um, it was listed in this report and they had uh, a good graph on that and showing Canada was at the 12th lowest consumer of listed as the low, 12th lowest consumer of antimicrobials per capita. So if you looked at kind of the lowest consumption country, which was the Netherlands. And you looked at Greece, which is the most consumption. Canada fit at the 12th lowest. And so just kind of to put you put that into perspective, Canada consumed nearly twice the amount of antimicrobials than the Netherlands, but half the amount of Greece. So I think that's an important consideration to see where we are fitting globally. But we'll talk a little bit about the regional um, differences as well. But really kind of pinpointing on the fact that along with surveillance, increasing awareness of antimicrobials, I think it also impacts us as prescribers. And just to think about, is this appropriate use of this antibiotic? And do we need to be using these antibiotics? And I think part of the surveillance understanding the surveillance numbers and and why we're doing surveillance is to really drive um, uh, you know see what the pattern is showing for resistance but antimicrobial use as all of us are aware is one of the key drivers of the resistance patterns and so I think it's important um, to kind of just remind ourselves of what is going on nationally so 
The report identified that the situation in Canada is worsening. We talked about some of the priority pathogens. We talked about some of the resistance patterns. We talked about how the antibiogram data is changing. So let's talk a little bit about the prescription rates overall. So in the report, um, antimicrobial use and antimicrobial prescription rates, whether um, you know consumption or dispension of antimicrobials was all discussed. So overall, our antimicrobial prescription rates have increased in this 2014 to 2018 period, almost close to 6%. In 2018, 64% of prescriptions originated from either family physicians, general physicians, compared to other medical or non-medical specialties, prescribing around 35%. Notably, antimicrobial purchasing by hospitals increased by nearly 30%. And the key example they gave there was daptomycin had a 58% increase in purchasing by Canadian hospitals. There was also reports that there is increase in purchasing of doxycycline and penicillin G, and these are currently being investigated as part of the next report. There was also mention uh, further of antibiotics or antimicrobials that are put under WHO's AWARE category of being reserved antimicrobials. And so these are antimicrobials that should really be reserved for treating multidrug resistant infections. And their overall kind of uh, purchasing rates had nearly increased to 10%, uh, although fortunately their use remained less than 1%. So these some of these reserve antimicrobials would include daptomycin, linazolid, ceftaz, avibactam, uh, just to give you a few examples. It was also mentioned in the report that carbapenem use is increased by more than 120% in the community setting. And as most of us are aware, erdipenem being a common carbapenem used in the community setting, there had a report, been reports of doubling in its use uh, during this 2014 to 2018 period. So I think in order to, again, really understand the depth and degree of antimicrobial use. We have to re remind ourselves and refresh the definition of defined daily dose. So as most of us are aware, that's abbreviated as DDD. The, and this is the assumed average maintenance dose per day for an antimicrobial drug that's used for its main indication in adults. So this DDD provides usually a fixed unit of measurement. It's independent of the price, currencies, size, and strength but really it gives us an easy way to assess trends in drug consumption. So I'm going to use some of those numbers just to give you an overall and a review of the consumption. So in 2014 to 2018, annual antimicrobial consumption, so either dispensed by community pharmacies and purchased by hospitals, was close to 17.5 antimicrobial doses were consumed each day for every thousand population days or that's close to 6,300 doses annually consumed every thousand inhabitants. So really this trend more likely was listed to be driven by the 29% increase in purchasing of antimicrobials by hospitals. But just to give you kind of um, an overall uh, con uh, consumption data, 
important to kind of uh, key in these numbers here. So if we compare that um, to, let's say we were talking about the carbapenem increase, so in the community setting up by 120%, for instance, if we look at that, erdipenem use went from 2.5 DDDs per 1,000 inhabitants up to close to 5. So that's where that near doubling in use of erdipenem numbers are reflective. So like I mentioned in Promise, we look at a regional perspective of antimicrobial use. So in 2018, as per the report, Canadian provinces in the eastern part of Canada, so PEI and Newfoundland, consumed the largest quantity per capita. And then the lowest consumption was in the territories and British Columbia. So in 2018, 90% of the DDDs were dispensed in the community sector and only 10% purchased by hospitals. So I think that gives you kind of the consumption um, or dispensing sorry, rates as well um, based on where they're occurring, whether in the community or the hospital setting. And whenever we talk about antimicrobial use, I think we always have to bring up the estimated healthcare costs because as most of us are aware, these are usually directly affected. So in the report, they had indicated that for both community and hospital, the estimated costs of all antimicrobials that were consumed during 2014 to 2018 had gone up from close to 810 million to 825 million in just four years. So another kind of component of the antimicrobial use and uh, really focusing on dispensing of antimicrobials and which classes, because I thought that was quite interesting um, uh, and well laid out in the report and an, an important um, point for us clinicians as well, is that in the community setting, the top five antibiotic classes that were dispensed going from the most to the least were the extended spectrum penicillins, tetracyclines, then macrolides, then fluoroquinolones, and then our first generation cephalosporins being the least dispensed. In the hospital setting for dispensing antimicrobials, it really depended on if the patients were in the ICU or non-ICU. And so the report was able to separate those two settings and report out the most to the least dispensing. And so in the non-ICU setting, the most dispensed were was cefazolin, then piperacillin tazobactam, then metronidazole, then ceftriaxone, with the least being ciprofloxacin. Whereas in the ICU setting, you had a um, cefazolin was still the most dispensed, but then also with piperacillin tazobactam being number two, um, and then more of your uh, broader antimicrobials like vancomycin, and then meropenem, and then least was ceftriaxone. So those are just interesting. Um, kind of top five antibiotic classes that were dispensed uh, and differently in the two settings um, that I thought was um, quite important to share. So um, I think uh, for some of the key points there about antimicrobial use and just looking at those numbers um, and how they directly affect, you know, the initial part that we talked about today, which was resistance, was important just to kind of key in some of those um, important statistics in Canada. So uh, this we're uh, coming 
kind of closer to the end of our podcast today or in our episode. Um, so we're going to finish off by just identifying some of the emerging threats because I did want to convey that information as an important part of the CARS 2020 report. So as most of us are aware, Canada Oris back in uh, between 2012 and 2019, there was 24 cases that were reported of Canada Oris uh, to PHAC and uh, so the Public Health Agency of Canada and some of which were multi-drug resistant. So just keeping that in mind. Notably, we didn't talk a lot about Nicere gonorrhea today, um, although an important uh, pathogen with its increasing rates and also um, notably the in 2017 and 2018 it was identified as an emerging threat because the first cheftriaxone resistant case of Nicere gonorrhea was reported in Canada and it was associated with travel to Southeast Asia so really kind of keying in on importance of empiric management there um, and then finally, the carbapenemase genes, uh, there was an identified emerging threat that's been detected in acinetobacter isolate uh, from, a patient, uh, from patients in healthcare settings. So there was 41 cases that were reported with carbapenemase uh, producing uh, uh, acinetobacter species uh, between this 2014 to 2018 period. And this really represents a threat to the continued effectiveness of carbapenems against uh, acinetobacter species. So just keeping that in mind. All right, so I want to thank everyone for tuning in today for our very first episode and discussing the surveillance report. I hope you found this short segment, a great review of antimicrobial resistance, use, and some of our common pathogens and priority pathogens that were discussed today. Please reach out to us via email if you would like to have specific topics discussed or um, like to come on to the podcast and discuss um, a specific area in infectious diseases. We would be uh, grateful uh, to have um, input regarding that. And I want to end off today by thanking uh, Verity Pharmaceuticals for um, its uh, ongoing support for um, this podcast and I hope that you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to uh, creating new up-to-date um, episodes in the near future. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you Dr. Pierre Wall and to Verity Pharmaceuticals. Thanks for listening to our very first episode. Email us at thecanadianbreakpoint at gmail.com if you have any comments or if you have any infectious disease topics you'd like to hear about and for us to discuss. We look forward to seeing you again at the Canadian Breakpoint.